So today we have in the studio with us Valerie Leones from BH Consulting. Valerie, welcome. Thank you. I'm sure people within Ireland would be familiar with your background. You spent a long time with KBC and right now you're with um, BH Consulting. You've also done a lot of speaking engagements, but this podcast now has listeners from around the world as well. So if you could share with us a little bit about your background, that would be great. Okay. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be part of the podcast. So I started in IBM um, as a student in IBM when I was 19. It was an opportunity in a time when there was no work in, in Ireland to to get a good job. And it was a great time working in IBM. And the week I started at IBM and, and a machine called the AS400 was announced. And that kind of catapulted my career because the two things being hand in hand, my start in IBM and this AS400, this new breakthrough machine as it was back then. And so I went from there to KPMG. Um, I went as a programmer um, into KPMG. I was a really bad programmer. Um, so I moved on from uh, being a programmer to working on the S400 again. And I worked for a company called JBA, who was an Irish software house at the time. And so I worked there for five years. And that's where I really started to learn business, how businesses worked and how enterprise risk worked. And then I started to study. I had started studying for my degree at nighttime. I already had a certificate in computer programming. So I started studying and I couldn't really continue to work out in JBA, which was in Sandyford. So I moved into a music company that were near Trinity College. And so I spent two years there and then I moved to the financial institution, which was a IIB afterwards when my degree was completed as an auditor because I had never done auditing before and it was the computer auditor. So I hated it and it just wasn't for me. And an opportunity came up in IIB, now KBC, for uh, somebody in the computer department and they wanted somebody to look after security. So that's kind of how I started and got into security as such. But I'd always worked in IT. I've never actually worked outside of IT. Even when I was in audit, I was in IT audit. So, But I learned a lot in audit as well about business risk. So by the time I reached KBC, I had a fair idea how enterprise risk worked, not just security risk. And so I spent a couple of years there and then I decided that I wanted to do a master's. Uh, for lots of reasons, I always felt that master's education in general just opens doors. And so I wanted some new doors to be opened that I felt were probably going to be closed to me without a master's. So I started doing my master's in 2012. Um, it backfired on me in that I did it to essentially promote myself and rise through the next stage. But it actually ended that I decided I wanted to leave banking, that it wasn't going to be a fulfilling place for me. And that came as a result of the masters and part of that was executive coaching and uh, diploma in leadership. And so during the course of doing those particular pieces of education, I suppose self-exploration was part of it and trying to understand who you are and what makes you tick and what makes you motivated to work. And so I realized financial institutions weren't for me, not as a full-time career. And so I decided to figure out what it was I wanted to do. And I felt that what I really, really wanted to do was to be a lecturer. And so I decided to do a PhD. And, and that was kind of how the PhD journey started. And I didn't really care 
what my PhD was in. I could have done one in basket weaving. Uh, I just wanted to do PhD. And so then it takes about a year to figure out if you don't know what you want to do, because a PhD is your own. You created yourself. It's your own piece of research. So I did a lot of discussion with a lot of professors and a lot of different universities to try and figure out what would my PhD look like. So it took about a year to create the PhD. And then finally, I found a supervisor who would take me on as their PhD student. And that was Professor Pia Lynn and Dr. Lisa Vanderwerf in DCU. So that was the beginning of the PhD journey. And would you share with us as well a little bit about the PhD that you're working on at the moment? Uh, it's a bit organic. A PhD is, it isn't like, it almost changes uh, on a yearly basis because as you dive deeper, you sort of drop off edges and you say, well, I'm not going to look at that anymore because I actually want to go deeper into this. So um, for the first couple of years of your PhD, some describe it as a fog and every now and then there's a light in the distance and you say, oh my God, there's a light, but it switches off and then it goes dark again. And so that's the way it is with a PhD. But my PhD is primarily looking at trying to see if there is a way for privacy protection to be more effective because currently we can see that breaches are rising in magnitude and frequency and um, so how we respond to privacy at the moment which typically is through regulation is not effective it's not working and the reasons it's not working are very clear because the pace of technology is so fast that regulation takes so long to be updated it can't respond quick enough and so technology is fast outpacing the rate that regulation and legislation is produced and our responses are built and constructed around responding to legislation after the horse is bolted you know the damage is done and mandatory reporting is about reporting a breach but the breach has already occurred so there's an issue as well so my research is really primarily focusing on if instead of organizations approaching privacy as a compliance tick the box exercise if they instead approached privacy as a value that enhanced and engendered consumer trust would it be more effective and there are some organizations that have already started to do this but that's essentially what my research question is so i'm looking at lots of different non-market strategies for privacy like corporate social privacy at corporate political privacy so there are privacies that we don't typically see in the workplace the workplace privacy that we're typically seeing is regulatory privacy and i have to ask why are you so passionate about this topic It's a great question. I was never as passionate about cybersecurity, but my career has been in cybersecurity. Mm. And uh, cybersecurity is something I fell into. Privacy is something I chose. And it was um, when you go to look for your PhD, your piece of research, either you know what it is you want to research, or if you're going to go and look for it, I spoke to a professor in uh, Trinity College, and he had said to me and suggested this as an approach is to look at your past to look at the future and to try and build a funnel between the two, that the funnel is actually your research. So my past was cybersecurity. I felt the future was privacy and that I thought maybe there was a funnel in the middle. So when I started, I don't think I was so passionate about privacy, but when I actually started reading about privacy, it's a fascinating subject. It's not, in my view, like cyber, uh, which is very management, technology, it sort of has three dimensions. Privacy is social, 
it's uh, human behavior, it's so many different aspects. It's also regulation. It's also organizational strategy. It's in almost every discipline in a university. There's privacy, there's risk management. So it covers so many different disciplines. It keeps somebody like me who can get bored quite easily. It's one of the things I, I do know about myself is that I can tire easily of a subject. I'm never tired of privacy because a new revelation made on a monthly basis every time I read something new, um, you know, it's a fascinating subject. I think I've become passionate about it because I see value in it. You know, this is a, an interesting thing I discovered about myself on the leadership course is that how all of us are so different in what makes us feel fulfilled. And what makes me feel fulfilled is somebody saying, oh, that's really beneficial. And I never felt that way when I worked in a financial sector. And yet many people do. They feel that if they balance the sheets, the you know, the profit and loss account, that feels fulfilling to them. It would never feel fulfilling to me. That doesn't mean it's not fulfilling. Of course it is to them, but it's not to me. And yet privacy feels fulfilling to me. It seems to resolve a social issue. And I think I'm very connected to social issues, even in my own personal life. So I, I think that may be why I'm, I'm passionate about it. I actually don't really know. You know, I can't say for certain why I'm passionate about it, but I do know I am keenly interested in all things privacy. I really like when you said you fell into security, but you chose privacy. Because it's such a distinction between the two. A lot of people ended up wherever they are working today, not by way of choice, but with the flow it happened. But I think it's important to note that you do have a choice oh, yeah. to make a difference just because you're working on, let's say, an area outside of cybersecurity and you want to get into it. It doesn't mean you can't just because you're not in it. You have to actively choose it and make a choice to do something different and make it happen. I kind of want to touch on the fact that you said you went back to school, you got a master's to really look at promotion within your career at that point. Yeah, right? absolutely. How was that going back to school after working for so long? Because it actually, it, it's a great question because I remember at the time thinking, you know what, I have children, I, you know, a lot had changed from when I did my degree. Mm -hmm. I did my degree in the same way, working full time during the day and doing my degree at night. But I had no children. My life was mine. So I could choose to spend three nights a week in a university without any difficulty. But when I went back to do my master's, I had to revisit that and say, I can't do that. You know, I, I had to find a different way. And so I found a different way, which is um, that the it was the Irish Management Institute ran a master's where you could get block release for three days a month and then you could do assignments and your assignments would be done outside of that block release. There were a lot of assignments, but you could do your assignments at whatever time suited. So if you had free time and work, you could do it during work hours. And then in the evening after you got kids to bed or whatever, you could do it during that time. That's essentially what worked for me. I didn't know that that was available. I actually had to meet somebody who told me that that's how they were doing their masters. And I thought that was really interesting that I wasn't aware. I just thought that the traditional way, you know, you go to the university. And of course, that's completely changed now is that, you know, a lot of masters are online and they were available as online masters. You could do them. But I never wanted that. 
It just doesn't work with me. I need participation in a classroom. I'm somebody who needs people to answer questions, to bounce ideas. In an online environment, it just doesn't work for me. But I know lots of people who love doing their master's online. The other piece, I suppose, was the master's was done in chunks. So you didn't have to do it all together at the same time. So if I wanted to opt out, I could always opt out and say, OK, I've done piece one. I'll take another year out. I'll take a break. I'll do piece two. I didn't have to do that in the end, but it was an option there for me as well. That was the IMI master's allowed you to do it in modules. So that was a, another sort of piece that helped when I went back. But the other piece that was really important was before I embarked on that, I decided I would do a nine week FETAC course in IBAT College on web design. It was a completely irrelevant course. It was nothing that had anything to do with what I did. But I just wanted to see, was I really going to apply myself? I wasn't going to invest in a master's if I wasn't going to be able to do a nine-week course in IBAT College in web design. So I did that. And then after that, I decided, OK, I'm able to do it. I want to go ahead and do the master's. I mean, it's a financial investment as well, because a master's is a significant amount of money if you're doing an executive master's. So I had to be certain it was what I wanted. As you were talking about it, I think about my personal experience, nothing to do with taking a master's, which I don't have one. But I think about it as, for example, I don't go to the gym. I've tried to, I've paid a lot of money going to the gym because I think, oh, if I pay a lot of money up front, that's going to hurt. That's going to make me commit to it. Yeah. But what I didn't do is try to pay maybe a weekly fee for nine weeks and see if I could keep up. So that's really good advice to someone who's thinking about perhaps going back to pursue an education. Start small, do something that you might have an interest. It's not going to take 12 months or 18 months of your time, but maybe nine weeks. See if you can manage that. And if you enjoy it at the end, you know you're ready to take the next step. Exactly. Yeah. You know, those those are really, really solid tips over there. So thank you for that. And from what you said earlier, it's really apparent that you know exactly what works for you and what doesn't. Have you always been like that or is this something that you've kind of discovered throughout your career? Um, actually, I was a, a late blossomer, will we say. I did the master's. Uh, it was broken into three modules. The first was a commercial computer strategy, cloud computing strategy. And that was fine. You know, it does what it says in the tin. Then the next one was executive coaching. And part of that, in fact, most of it was being coached and analyzing yourself in terms of your personality types, etc. And that was the wake up for me in that um, I learned an awful lot about me. You had to do 360 analysis, you know, and, and also during the leadership module, we had to do the same things as well. But it's very much about analyzing who you are. And really, we don't take that kind of time out in our careers to stop and say, who am I? Am I being fulfilled? Does this get me what I need? You just get on a treadmill sometimes, particularly when you have a young family. You're just paying the mortgage, doing the work, you know, leading the team, going home, being the family, going back to work. It's a routine. And and you probably, I've often said that people who have changed their world by having a child, immense change, they just want the sameness going in every other aspect in their lives. For me, I never really explored those pieces of me. I just did the same thing. There were so many little things that I found out about myself. You would think, why did you not know that? I didn't know that I constantly interrupt people and that that bothers other people. I never was aware of that. 
And it's where it's how I'm built, because in a conversation, I love people interrupting me. It doesn't bother me, but it seems. And one of the things I discovered was it actually bothers other people. And this was a revelation to me because um one of the analysis that I did was I was a particular personality type. And, and one of the things about those particular personalities is that they like this electric conversation of ideas and fastness in, in discussion and how we speak and that not other people are like that. And sometimes that approach can really annoy people who come from a different space. And I went back to my team and I said to my team, you know, do I do this? And they're like, oh my God, you do it all the time. And I said, does it irritate you? And they said, oh my God, all the time. So that was a very new revelation. And it's a tiny, tiny thing. It's it's hardly a, a career blockbuster. But it was those kind of small things where you realize I actually don't know me, really. And so that was a kind of a journey about figuring out who was Valerie, really? What did Valerie do that other people don't do? You know, that whole extrovert versus introvert, it really interesting that I assumed because people spoke easily in public that they were extrovert. Well, it's not the case. And, you know, I learned an awful lot about the differences between extrovert and introvert. And as I get older, I become more the introvert than I ever was. But it's more about where your energy comes from. I definitely get my energy from other people. If I have a bad day, I'll ring up a friend and say, want to come out to dinner? And I know so many people who'd say, oh my God, that sounds like the worst thing ever. They just want to go home and be in a dark space. And I get my energy from other people. But as I get older, I find myself warming more towards maybe a little bit more downtime, less people. I actually think it's probably the busyness of life and family and stuff like that, that when I do get a space with no people in it, I actually really love it. But you don't get much of that, do you? No, I don't. And and I can tell you something funny is that every year I go to Chicago, my one week off uh, where I don't have work and I don't have kids. It's just one week in the year that I don't have anything. And I always go business class so that I don't have anybody to talk to either. And I don't have to talk to the person sitting beside me because there is nobody sitting beside me. And it's actually the best part of that holiday. Is seven hours on that plane. It's just the best. Disconnected. Just from the totally. World. Yeah. When the journey ends, I feel, oh, so <laughs> back to reality. Yeah. yeah. I like that you mentioned earlier about different personalities, because I think this is something that a lot of people are actually not aware of, because I have a tiny bit of background in coaching. This was in Singapore, where we would have motivational, educational camps. I went through it myself. In Singapore, we have this term called gasu. It means afraid to lose. So it's literally a mindset where parents are so afraid that their kids are going to lose out. They send them to motivational camps to build character, to help them in studying, etc. If you're between the age of 10 to 16, you would have attended one of these. And parents pay good money for that. And as teenagers for us, what we do is, you know, you have the option to opt in to such a camp after to help coaching. You could mentor a team that's smaller, younger than you. So you see a lot of different types of personality, how they work together. But also one thing that was really interesting was the founder of this camp. When he was on stage, he was active, full of energy, the typical extrovert. Yeah. But behind the scenes, he was a complete opposite introvert, likes to spend time with himself. It wasn't that he wasn't friendly, but that was just him. And that was, for me, the first time I realized there is such a thing as an extroverted introvert oh, and absolutely. an introverted extrovert. Yeah, you absolutely. Know. So a lot of people 
I don't think they're aware of it. Yeah. But when you do become aware of that, it's an interesting world altogether. And so today you do a lot of executive coaching as well, right? What would be a piece of advice that you find yourself giving to people that you mentor a lot? Um, I would say uh, the biggest would be it's not personal. Every time I'm talking to somebody coming to me for a reason to ask me, how should I deal with this or what should I do with this situation? Typically, it's a situation. It's because somebody has said something. It's that I would say one perceive kindness. If you perceive that everything is being delivered to you with kindness, you'll hear a different message because often we don't perceive it to be a kind message and be kind. Even if you think about how exploring different facets of yourself, um, like I spoke there about simple things like maybe I interrupt people. If I do that with kindness to me, I actually think of it as, well, I'm not a bad person. I, I have a little trait that can be quite irritating to other people and I need to be conscious of that. But actually, it doesn't make me a bad person. And so tools can often help make it more palatable rather than have somebody say, by the way, you know, you're an interrupter. It can be a tool that can say, well, you know, this personality type has all these particular facets and here are some good ones and here are some bad ones. It's kinder to deliver it like that. So I think my often cited piece of advice to people would be kindness. Because in the workplace, I often hear people say things like, oh, that felt really hurtful. Maybe it wasn't meant to be hurtful. Maybe you heard hurtful. And maybe it was meant to be hurtful. But if it was meant to be hurtful and you hear an understanding that they're obviously in a bad place, you hear it with kindness. So it's just to bring kindness into what we hear and what we say. And if we bring the kindness into our daily interactions, I think it makes for a better workplace. I think it works really closely with impression if we're close to someone or someone who's a close friend of yours they might say the exact same thing to you as a piece of honest advice as someone that you may not really get along well with but because you perceive your close friend as someone who's kind to you the message sounds different totally, yeah. in an instant so that's a really good message there. I want to touch on the family aspect as well, because you mentioned to me that you were widowed quite some time ago. And this was in the midst of managing your career, managing family, as well as your studies. That was a moment when you must have felt really vulnerable. How did you overcome that? I would often say that for any crisis, it doesn't really matter what the crisis, uh, you know, everybody has their own crisis. For any crisis, you're in it. It's not like somebody says to you, um, how did you cope when you were in that crisis? You're in it and you respond as best you can with whatever tools you have. But often you don't know that that's what you're doing. You're just trying to get through the day. So you can reflect and look back at what you might have done. But at the time, I don't think you're actively saying, now, what are the tools that I'm going to use today? If you know what I mean. So I would say, looking back at the time, I was very focused on making sure that I was going to be happy, that my needs were going to be met. I knew that I was going to have to meet the needs of children, but I knew that to do that, and that was one of the learnings that I'd had is again from the masters, was that you can't be happy 
in your workplace if you are actually not being fulfilled. So I really focused on making sure that I was fulfilled. And my PhD, I think, became a big part of that focus so that, you know, nothing would stand in the way of myself and my PhD. If it meant being on the breadline, uh, you know, that I would still be doing the PhD. And it actually worked. Reflectively looking back on it, I'd say that um, I would, I think I would happily say that if I had been working full time in a role that I wasn't happy in during that period, I'd have really struggled to cope during that period. But like, it's not during that period. The period's still now, you know, kids are older now, they're still growing. Um, you know, everything changes, but the, the situation is always the same in that, you know, you're always in demand. And yet I still have my PhD and I'll keep it going for as long as I can. <laughs> it's like, well, it's, my Valium. <laughs> it's my Valium. It's my Valium. I think that everybody finds a coping mechanism. You just have to. It's easy to turn around and say, maybe you have resilience, maybe you gained resilience through your childhood and did you have loving parents and yada, yada, yada. You could psycho babble it to the nth degree. But I think what happens for most people is you just figure it out the best way you can. It may not be brilliant, but you just figure it out. I think that as long as you can find some space in there that says, this gives me fulfillment, that you'll be able to respond to everybody else's needs in a better way. So fulfillment and happiness really go hand in hand. They do for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know that they do for everybody because mm -hmm. um, I've often thought, well, could somebody really be fulfilled doing a menial task, for instance? And could they really be fulfilled if they read the Sunday Mail or the Daily Mail or whatever a kind of tabloid newspaper? And yeah, people are. I am not uh, but people are. So I think my definition of fulfillment is mine and it's absolutely different for everybody. And it's the same with happiness. So for a lot of people, maybe a cup of tea and a digestive biscuit is their idea of contentment. And yet others, it'll be jumping off a cliff with a parachute, you know, so they're complete extremes. For me, fulfillment comes from definitely contributing to a societal issue in some way. You know, I teach Tai Chi as part of a society. It's a non-profit making society and it's about bringing a form of, of meditation and relaxation to society. So it's not just my PhD or my work or anything like that. I, I think I carry it throughout my life that that's what makes me tick. How did you discover Tai Chi? Through the masters. One of the tools that we used was called the Enneagram. A very interesting tool if you've ever done it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's amazing. It's a tool that I use for anybody who wants to sort of come to me and ask me about how would they best self-develop. I would say go with the Enneagram. And it's just a way to explore maybe your traits in a kind and compassionate way. The Enneagram was the one for me. I'm a seven on the Enneagram and I'm a full on seven. I am exactly as the book calls it. You know, you can label people. I'm not saying label, you shouldn't label people, but I believe that I really warm to this particular type of analysis, um, the seven. And one of the things about the seven is that, that they cannot be still. They struggle with stillness. They cannot find it. And of everybody, they need it the most. The seven has to find ways to encourage stillness. So I went on a journey of trying everything. I tried meditation. I tried yoga. I tried uh, mindfulness. I tried them all and none of them worked for me. And then one day I saw people doing Tai Chi in the park. They were Chinese or uh, certainly Asian. And it was so beautiful. I just thought, 
I want to do that. And I've since met loads of people who are exactly the same, that when they see it, they know that that's what will work for them. And I get meditation. I've never really had the capacity to meditate properly, but I can with Tai Chi and it's called a walking meditation. People do Tai Chi for different reasons. Some people do it because it has health benefits, but I do it for the meditation element that can be achieved when you just think of nothing else but what the next move is. And when you get to really know there's 108 moves, when you get to really know the 108 moves, then you don't even think about what the next move is. You actually know what the next move is, cellular memory or whatever it is, and you just go. It actually is really lovely to do with other people as well, because you get energy from doing it together. Mm -hmm. That's the chi, I suppose, of Tai Chi. It combines the things that you love. Yeah. Not being still... Because meditation, for most people who think about it, is sitting down and just clearing your headspace. So that's not going to work for you. And you get energy through people. Yeah. So Tai Chi for you works because it combines everything. Absolutely. I never even thought of it, but you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I look at, for example, my interest. So I'm an introvert by nature. I know that I can be an extrovert when I need to, but I get a lot more energy being with myself, being with my thoughts. And I love cooking. And that's something that really you don't need to work with people. And I can get lost in it for hours. But for other people, it might be going to the gym, going to yoga. So it's just identifying what works for you. Yeah. And pursuing it. Typically in Ireland, years and years ago, my mother would sit and knit for hours. And I think knitting and sewing and, and, and sort of lost crafts, these were the ways that people meditated. Doing the rosary. These are things that are lost to us now. But we did have ways in the past to meditate. We just didn't call them meditation. Absolutely. But we've lost that. And so we need to, for a lot of people, we need to find it. I work with a girl now and she crochets and she will crochet for hours, if not days. And and she's kind of brought that skill now into the office. And now there's a group of people who sit in the corner of the office at lunchtime, quietly all crocheting. And one of them is like using it as stress management. And it works. Amazing. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. Um, But it's it's whatever works. Some people play golf, you know, it's whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. But to find stillness in your mind where you don't actually think about anything. And cooking is yeah. a really good one because I, I love cooking too. Mm-hmm. And people often say to me, oh, I don't want you to put, I don't want to put you to any trouble. But they don't get that it's actually the most relaxing thing when you enjoy cooking. Some people don't get any meditative qualities from cooking because it's a struggle for them. They hate it. Oh, I know a lot of people (laughs) who do that. But trust me, if you ever need to cry, just chop some onions. (laughs) (laughs) You do a lot of work with privacy and compliance. And am I right to say GDPR is really only a very small part of privacy? It is. Yeah. And the big problem is, and I think I would have been guilty of this as well. I think everybody is guilty of this. Business is guilty of it, that we talk about privacy. We use the word privacy. What we actually are talking about is data protection legislation. That's what it translates to, but we call it privacy. Privacy is so much more when you're at home and that some people are more private than others is a propensity 
propensity towards privacy. They're the same kind of people that maybe trust less easily than others. Um, there's gender differences in privacy. We know that, say, women are more private about work life and men are more private about their home life. We know that there's age differences. We know that there's cultural differences. People from China don't have the same privacy expectations as people from Europe. There's so many differences when we, we talk about privacy and how we behave about our privacy. It's not just about data protection. It's also about our behaviours. It's also about controlling things. It's about wanting to be alone. That's privacy. Actually wanting to draw the curtains and not have anybody invade that space. Some people want more privacy than others. So privacy is a much bigger monster. It's also a very multidisciplined area. You know, it's a legal area. It's anthropological, it's social, there's lots of different schools, it's management information. So there's lots of different schools for privacy. That's probably why it's so interesting, because it's so multidimensional. For me, the piece that I suppose I work with is the data protection piece, um, because that's the piece that's of value to organisations. And that's the piece that's most meaningful at the moment. Because when I started in my PhD, GDPR was also announced. So the two things came hand in hand. And it made sense um, because currently there's not too many people who are sort of expert in cyber risk management and privacy, as in data protection. And so I'd have the three pillars and they really knit well together. So it means I can talk to people in the computer department about data protection and I can talk to people in the boardroom about data protection and I can talk to people in the back office about data protection, all using different language. That's what I, I suppose the marriage of cyber risk management and data protection has come to give me. It's come full circle. Yeah, yeah. And you also speak at a lot of conferences and events is it easy for you now because you've done so many speaking engagements that you know it, it's you don't really get nervous anymore or do you still feel that before going on stage oh i would say it depends and i don't want to sound like a, a lawyer with that answer but it does depend so if i'm talking about gdpr i don't feel nervous at all i suppose is it the imposter syndrome you know I do know about GDPR. I do know my bit. So when I'm talking about GDPR, I don't feel nervous. I do look at the audience and I think, you know, uh, am I going to keep them engaged with what I have to speak about? So that would be my worry in that context is I'll have to speak for an hour. And then at the same time, and there's a difference between speaking and training. So, I mean, I could talk about GDPR as in a training course for two days. I do the Irish Times executive training. I don't have a difficulty doing that, but it's about keeping people engaged rather than feeling uncomfortable with my topic. When I talk about privacy, as in for my PhD, I'm a student. I'm not the doctor. And so the student is presenting to the doctors. And in that context, for instance, today, this morning, I was at the Irish Academy of Management presenting part of my PhD, but I'm presenting it to people who are further down the road of understanding methodologies and, and other things that are very PhD-esque, shall I say. I'm not as confident in that space, so I still get more nervous in that space. Now, I was never a sweaty palms person. I, I would never have been that way. And then sometimes I talk about to challenge myself rather than talk just about GDPR. I like 
like to talk about stuff that's new at the moment. I suppose I'm doing a lot of research into digital ethics. When I talk about digital ethics, I know that not an awful lot of people out there know about it. So the little bit that I know is more than they know. And so that's okay too. But then you might meet somebody who's actually a doctor of ethics or something like that. And you move back into student. But I I am not really a nervous speaker. But I don't really speak about stuff I don't know. If I'm talking about my PhD, I do know what I'm talking about, but I feel my audience knows more than me. And then that's probably just imposter syndrome. I'm sure they don't. My PhD is mine. And so I know as much about it as anybody. But I think for a lot of people, maybe speaking is a difficulty anyway. They have the sweaty palms. I never really had that issue. I kind of buzz. My daughter once asked me, she was doing ballet, she was only about four, and she said, oh, I'm so nervous. And I said, well, are you nervous or are you excited? And she said, what's the difference? And I said, I don't really know. One is good, one is bad, but I think they feel the same. And they do feel the same. So, you know, am I nervous or excited? It's hard to know. I think you make a choice to either say to yourself, I'm really nervous about this, or I'm actually really excited about this. And again, perception changes everything. You can be thrown into any situation. If you change your perception of that situation, it's going to change how you deal with that situation. And eventually the outcome is going to be drastically different. Yeah. When I wanted to move abroad, it took me eight years to make that dream come true. I see so many people just making use of working holiday visa, or you could easily move around Europe anywhere. But in Singapore, we have a really strong passport. But it doesn't allow you to just move anywhere to work because you still need to get a visa. So I tried to move to Australia for many years. I don't know why. Don't ask me (laughs) about Australia, right? Um, Great country. But I know. And I've got family there as well. And the first time I tried to move, I applied to a hospitality degree. When I was in school, I used to part-time at restaurants, clubs, etc. Just to get my pocket money and all that. And I used to love the F&B sector, working with people client-facing side of things. So I thought, okay, why not let's go for a hospitality degree? It makes sense. I applied, got in without my mom knowing. So the application came back. Obviously, then I need the finances to do that and showed it to my mom. Hey, I got in to Australia. I need about 100 grand, you know. She's (laughs) like, well, let me show you the bank book. We could send you there, but it's going to be really challenging. Then I thought about it literally for a second and I said, you know what, it's fine. I don't need to see the book. I'll make it happen. So the second time that I tried, that was probably four years later and I was already in recruitment. And that's essentially how I got into my current firm. So I wanted to move to Australia. I interviewed there. They said, we don't have the right opportunity and also visa is going to be challenging. At this point, Singapore still didn't have a working holiday visa relationship with Australia. Interestingly enough, the year that I moved, which was last year, they implemented it. Oh, no. But at that point, I was like, you know what? I don't want to move to Australia anymore. I want to move somewhere even further. Instead of flying seven hours, I now fly 17 hours away from home, right? So to cut the story short, it took me eight years for that to happen, but out of which I got into recruitment. I started my own business before I got into recruitment and I'm in Dublin today, which I absolutely love. I wouldn't have thought of Dublin at all if I got to Australia the first time I tried it. I suppose my point is it's not what life throws you, but how you make of what's thrown at you. Yeah, it's you know? how you respond. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So many people from different walks of life listen to this podcast. 
From a life perspective, what are three skills that you would recommend people to focus on? Um, I'd say the first one is learning. Just keep doing courses. It doesn't matter what they are, because I've known so many people looking back now who say things to me like, I can't move because the only thing I know how to do is X. There's an institutionalization that happens if you don't keep reskilling. And people often rely on their employer to reskill them and to keep their skills up, but it's not in their best interest. The only person who owns self-development by virtue of the definition of self-development is the person themselves. So learning, and that's a lifelong learning. I, I don't think that people should ever stop. It doesn't matter, as I say, if it's basket weaving, as long as you're learning something. So lifelong learning. I took a break from learning. It's a regret, but I feel looking back, maybe I just wasn't ready to go back to learning at the time. But it does leave a gap in terms of being skilled up. I had to do a, an awful lot of learning afterwards to get back to where I should have been. Another skill I think is really important is learning how to deliver criticism in a positive way. It is not an easy thing to do. You can't be dishonest. You have to be true. But sometimes you have to say, actually, that's really not a good piece of work. I can't give that to the client. And it's learning how to say that. I can't say I'm always good at it. As I think it's a really difficult skill. Um, but I think one of the things I did learn in, when I was in audit was what they called the custard cream. And the custard cream is two biscuits, obviously, with cream in the middle. And so the cream is the bad news. So when you want to deliver a bad report and you're going to say, you know, there's a big issue here, you start off with, we found some really good controls, but deliver the bad stuff and then say, on the upside, you know, so you're kind of sandwiching it, bad news with something good on either side. And I've kind of used that. Now, sometimes I forget, but I think it's an important skill. And then another skill is to learn that only you have yourself to blame. You often hear people who are saying, well, I didn't get that job because of this and they're responsible because of that. And this didn't happen because of this. It actually, none of it matters. If it doesn't work for you, just get out and leave. But don't keep on blaming. I've seen so many discontent people stay in places and complain and blame. If you own your own future, if you own your career, you just change. You move, you do whatever's necessary. But inviting blame into your daily life is a very negative, sap-sucking exercise. Um, so a key skill in my view is to actually say, I'm responsible. I'm accountable. I'm, I'm owning whatever the decisions in my life are. Three very important skills there, you know, and, and I mean, I, I'm learning a lot just from listening to that. And I think the interesting thing about it is these are not things that are new to people. It's just it's in your subconscious. You know, it, it's kind of like, I suppose, when we're preparing candidates here for an interview. We're not telling them things they don't know. We're just reminding them. It's literally just a gentle nudge. Yeah. Hey, this is something that you know. That's all it's doing. So that's brilliant there. And do you have an interesting story that perhaps you could share? 
an interesting story. There's been many, I've had many different experiences over the years. I often am asked, you know, what got me into privacy? And I always position it as something quite recent. But I remember my mother used to rip up receipts and was very, very private conscious that receipts would be ripped up before they went into the bin um, into tiny little pieces because she didn't want anybody to see her receipts. Most bizarre looking back on it, because who was going to rummage through the bins back then? There was certainly no dumpster diving. And so I think privacy was probably something that was important to her, although it didn't seem important to me. And then there's been occasions as I've gone through my life. I I had an experience where I was on a train many, many years ago. I read the transcript of a labour court interaction um, between two parties, one Polish guy working in the civil service and an Irish guy. And it was their transcript. And it was somebody reading, I read over their shoulders, because I was standing up and they were sitting down and I had nothing else to do but read. And they they were, it was in big letters. It was on a Kindle. um, So it was probably less than 10 years ago. But that was a big revelation for me, as in, That person shouldn't. I I mean, I read names, ages, addresses, everything about these two people in the labor courts. And so that to me was an interesting thing, but it happened long before I ever embarked on privacy. I remember, I think it was Steve Jobs talked about, you know, you go through the dots and you don't realize that you're going through the dots, but it's only when you come out the other end and you see actually all the dots joined up. I wonder, did all the dots join up? And interesting, before recording this podcast today, I was just on LinkedIn. So people are sharing a lot of data protection type of stories or funny instances. And there was this post about a lady sitting at, I think, a boardroom or this must be the hall while waiting for a conference to happen. And this guy was just on the phone. It was a business call. And he was talking so loudly that by the end of that call, Everyone in the room knew who he was pitching to, the amount of the RFP, all the details, the name of the client, everything. You don't have to be in close proximity. If you're, if that person was just loud enough yeah. and you happened to be close by, you know everything. And if you're a competitor today, you know instantly what to do. And it just brings back the point of people need to become more aware. Like personally, I don't speak at a very loud volume and a lot of my colleagues tend to laugh at me sometimes because we have an open floor so when we're on the phone and if i'm on the phone they can't tell ever that i'm on the phone they think i'm miming all the time right and if i'm outside um, i rarely take work calls on the lures or on the bus because i just don't want people listening in yeah regardless of my volume and i think i like to think that you know a part of it is just how i've always been But also because I'm in security now, I've become more aware. A lot of it comes down to just educating the public on very simple things that they can really become aware of, which will change the way that we do things or prevent unnecessary things from happening. I've often used the expression, people are stupid. Um, Common sense isn't that common. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. And I see with my kids, they have more common sense when it comes to privacy. They understand that when they use an app, they give it all away. 
They do know that. That they do it is something that we don't understand. But they do know. And that's the big difference is that you have a lot of people now who don't know. They go online, they take pictures, that, that face app. Um, I, I knew plenty of people using that face app. Now, I kind of thought, what a ridiculous app. But people were using it yeah. without thinking what's going to happen with this. I've seen even simpler examples. Somebody posting on LinkedIn, give a shout out to key leaders who you've worked with. And then you see a lot of security people then saying, shout out to this person, shout out to that person. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, all you're doing is compromising LinkedIn's connections, limitations. That's all that you're doing. This person wants to see who the key leaders are in different institutions. And and these security people were doing it. So security people can often be, and and privacy people, uh, uh, let me not call one out over the other. They know their piece, but they can often have behaviours that aren't common sense themselves behind Mm -hmm. the scenes, like compromising LinkedIn's internal uh, legacy uh, security controls that they have. That is, you can't see my connections unless I let you. Well, if I put my connections into comments, then everybody can see them. So, yeah, I think there's a bit of common sense that sometimes is missing and no amount of controls can fix that. A hundred percent. Thank you so much for your time today, Valerie. It was a really, really great session with you. Thank you for having me, Alyssa. It was really interesting. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Women in Security podcast brought to you by Morgan McKinley. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. My name is Leif and Tan and we'll chat soon.